straight out of Philly, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Go Birds! I am your host, Dr. Artie Mullins from the University of Lucerne. Do you trust your leaders? What does a trustworthy leader even look like? Do you feel confident to ask your leaders critical questions? These are important questions to consider. In today's episode, I want to consider questions like this as they pertain to an alleged scandal surrounding a church planning organization called Acts 29. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate money to my Patreon account or my coffee account. Any donation amount helps me out in so many ways. My student loan provider greatly appreciates all the support that people have already offered. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Well, ready or not, here I am chatting about the church. Enjoy. Act 1, The Current State of Affairs. Some of you may remember an episode I did about moving back to America in 2022. I somewhat jokingly said that as I moved away from the Russian border and set foot on American soil, I said that I actually felt like I was somehow getting closer to communist Russia. The level of extreme ideology that I was witnessing in the American culture wars was downright shocking. The lies from the Biden White House were startling, and the way that the Biden administration had turned the media into its own propaganda machine was just scary. It really starts to look like Russian journalism. Around that same time, the reports were starting to come out about how the FBI had regular meetings with the social media companies to censor facts about the Hunter Biden laptop, COVID, and so many other things. It was, it was too much for me. After being away from America for several years, it was heartbreaking and it was disturbing to come back to a country that I find unrecognizable. Civil discourse is difficult to find. I mean, at this point, nuanced civil discourse is basically on life support in the broader U.S. culture. As we head into the 2024 presidential election, I don't foresee things getting any better. The Democrats, they seem to be stuck with Joe Biden, and the Republican nomination looks like it's going to be going to Donald Trump again. The Democrats have seen to it that rival candidates within the party cannot possibly get the nomination. Robert Kennedy was trying to run as a Democrat, but the Democratic primaries are rigged to prevent that from happening. We saw this before with Bernie Sanders and how that led to the Occupy Democrats movement. Last week, Kennedy came to Philadelphia to make the announcement that he is going to run as an independent now since the Democratic Party is too corrupt. I was there. I went to personally witness Kennedy's announcement. In one sense, this gives me a bit of hope to have an alternative candidate. I don't like that my forced options are a living corpse or a bloviating reality TV star. But Kennedy did not exactly inspire me. The start of his speech, it was a bit rocky. He walked up to the podium and immediately said, Oh, I, I forgot my speech. And then he, <laughs> he walks off stage and like someone hands him his notes. And he walks back up to the podium and he says, Oh no, my speech is upside down. So he kind of like faffs around for a little bit, but you know, Kennedy, he eventually gets it together and he gives a perfectly fine speech. He really did. I really liked his emphasis on needing to break away from a corrupt two-party system and try to find some common ground among Americans. But this did not instill confidence in me. You know, maybe if Kennedy had done some push-ups on the stage to demonstrate his physical fitness, you know, maybe then I'd have some more confidence in him. I mean, he's done that at other rallies, but he didn't do this in Philly. Now, the Republican Party, they've got some interesting candidates, but let's be honest, they are so boring compared to Donald Trump. I mean, they simply cannot capture the attention of the Republican primary voters because these candidates do not have years of experience on reality TV. 
The No Labels Party, they might try to put forward a boring middle-of-the-road candidate. That would be nice. I would really prefer a boring candidate right now. America could really use a, a middle ground right now. We desperately need to find the middle ground in this country again. But the No Labels Party, they just, they just keep dragging their feet. I feel like we need to buckle up for a very bumpy ride because the American culture wars simply cannot find space for any nuanced civil discourse, nor any room for disagreement. There is no interest in finding a middle ground. Instead, the woke cult wants to get more extreme and more authoritarian. Then they somehow want to act surprised that we are seeing a rise in right-wing extremist movements. I'm sorry, but you cannot have the Biden administration, corporations, and institutions push a bizarre and extreme ideology that is ruining people's lives, and then expect everyone to be happy. Extreme ideologies breed extreme rivals. When those extreme ideologies are backed by the level of coordinated authoritarianism that we are currently seeing in America, nothing good will come of it. We desperately need to find the common ground in order to have genuine diversity and freedom. But that is difficult when there is no room for disagreement, debate, or critique. It's very telling to see a leader refuse to answer obvious critical questions from the public. I mean, that just smacks of authoritarianism. But check out this recent press conference that Biden had in Hanoi. But I tell you what, I don't know about you, but I'm going to go to bed. We talked about we talked about at the conference overall. We talked about stability. We talked about making sure that the third world, the uh, excuse me, third world, the uh, the the, uh, the southern hemisphere had access to change. It had access. We, it wasn't confrontational at all. You came with me. Thank, thank you, everybody. This ends thank, the count press thank conference. You. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. So you, 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 you have Biden get cut off by his own press secretary and then play this like bizarre jazz music. I mean, I, I should start doing that when I don't want to answer questions. Just have my intern cue up some music, just drown me out as I shuffle my way off a stage. So one of the things I find disconcerting in America is the way that various churches and organizations have mirrored the culture wars. You see some church talk as if Donald Trump is somehow the second coming of Jesus, and you see these other churches worshiping at the altar of Anthony Fauci. Why does America have to be so extreme? The Italians have a word for any time America decides to be just way over the top. It's called Americanata. It basically means that America is being so incredibly American that they're somehow out-Americaning themselves. One of the things that breaks my heart is when I see a church get sucked into some sort of ideology. Oftentimes, people get sucked into an ideology because they believe that the slogans they hear actually mean what they say on the surface. I've talked about the dangers of slogans on previous episodes, but I want to emphasize it again. You can hear slogans that are obviously true. Don't be racist. Well, I, I mean, I can get behind that. Promote equality. Well, that sounds great to me. But here's the thing. In the hands of cult leaders, slogans like this rarely mean what they say. And other slogans start getting introduced that, that create a very divisive us-versus-them mentality. As I've spoken about in previous episodes, you often cannot figure out the true meaning of the network of slogans until it is too late. So when a church gets sucked into a hardline ideology, it can take years before they realize that they have abandoned the gospel for something else. There are many things that I am critical of coming from the right and the left in the contemporary culture wars. 
One of the things that I have witnessed is various churches seeming to go woke. They start out wanting to promote equality and diversity. And again, I think that's great. I really do. I think it's fantastic. Yet these churches often fall into the extremes of wokeness because America just has to be extreme. And the extremes here are very ugly. You start out wanting to agree with what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3. We are neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, slave nor free, because we are all one in Christ. The cultural things that would divide us should be set aside because we are all one in Christ. But in the hands of woke ideology, this gets perverted. It gets distorted. This biblical message of radical equality gets turned into the incredibly divisive and racist message of the American woke cult. And the American woke cult is quite friendly towards using authoritarian tactics to beat everyone into submission. The end result of this is not pretty. As various philosophers, theologians, and missionaries from around the world have told me again and again over the years, they keep telling me things like, please tell the Americans to keep their woke ideology in the U.S. We've had enough bloodshed already from liberation theology. We don't want to live through it again. And the stories they have told me of the blackballing and the bloodshed, they're very grim, genuinely appalling behavior. This is why I am afraid of left-wing movements like the woke cult and why I am afraid of right-wing movements like the Catholic integralism that was discussed on a recent episode. They both strike me as extremes with authoritarian tendencies that are more than willing to beat the opposition into submission through force. That is scary, to say the least. Now, my politics and beliefs about various topics, they do not fit into the different narratives that the American culture wars have crafted. So let me be clear about something. I am against authoritarianism in all its forms. It does not matter if it comes from the left or the right. It is a serious problem whenever any movement becomes corrupt, takes too much power, and starts beating the opposition into submission. It is a problem when we can no longer have civil discourse that is aimed at the truth and the common good of the people. When the common ground of a society erodes, that is a bad thing. And I believe that what we are witnessing in America today is an erosion of any common ground and a variety of extreme groups coming from the left and the right trying to grab at power. And I fear that far too many churches will mirror these extremes and drift away from the gospel. Now, in light of this, I want to talk about a controversy that has been stirring around Acts 29 over the past few years. Yes, Acts 29, the church planning ministry that used to have Mark Driscoll on its board. There have been some accusations that Acts 29 is becoming authoritarian in its leadership style. There have been allegations that Acts 29's leadership has no checks and balances, and that they are trying to strong-arm churches into mirroring whatever the current cultural fashion trends demand. What exactly are these allegations, and are they true? Let's find out. I have Chase Davis with me today. So Chase, could you tell, tell me a bit, uh, a bit about who you are? Because the audience might not know who you are. They might think I've just found some random jabroni off the street. And I, I really want to make sure they know that you're an actual educated pastor and just not some random crank. 
Yeah, for sure. So my name is Chase Davis. I'm a pastor in Boulder, Colorado. Um, hail from the great state of Texas, my fatherland, but I've been in Boulder for 12 years. I've been in Colorado for 14. Uh, planted a church up here back in 2011. Got a couple of degrees from uh, Denver Seminary. Won uh, MDiv, THM, and now I'm in a master, uh, PhD program over in the UK at the Free University of Amsterdam. Uh, doing New England Puritanism and theological anthropology, so that's uh, that's my kind of academic academic stuff. But yeah, we planted a church. We've planted several other churches out of our church, and uh, that's kind of some of my background. Nice. All right, so I have you here today to talk about Acts twenty nine. Uh, now, I've got a lot of international listeners, li- people listening in, so they might not know what Acts 29 is. So it'd be great if you could just tell us a bit about what Acts 29 is. So, like, what did this organization originally look like, and what did it set out to do? Yeah, so Acts 29 is one of several uh, in the U.S. church planting networks or affiliations or associations. So in the U.S., there's a kind of... In the ecclesiological landscape, there's a big emphasis on church planting. This really started, in my mind, in the 90s, although church planting, I mean, it would be an interesting conversation, not in this one, but to explore kind of the history of how churches get started Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing anywhere in the world. Um, Because when you're doing a missionary endeavor anywhere in the world, eventually you would love to see that result in a church being formed and planted with elders and deacons and all that. But Acts 29 is one of several. You've got uh, the Southern Baptist Expression would be NAM, North American Mission Board. Uh, you've got Orchard Church Planting. You've got ARC, which is the Association of Related Churches. So Acts 29 is just another option among several options in the United States. If you said, I wanted to plant a church, I feel called to plant a church, Acts 29 uh, was a network that you could go apply to, be assessed, uh, to see if you were competent and qualified to do that work. Um, what distinguishes Acts 29 or has I guess historically were its distinctives. So its distinctives have historically been uh, Reformed soteriology, meaning they're Calvinistic in their soteriology. Uh, They adopted the word missional. So thinking like missionaries in any given context, typically charismatic, more on the charismatic continuationist end of the spectrum. Although I would kind of argue based on a historic cessationism that they're actually more historically cessationist, but that's a topic for another day. (laughs) Um, And so, uh, and you're going to get complementarianism, which is actually very, one of its most unique qualities because in the American landscape right now, many church plants, many church plants trying to reach millennials and Gen Z are very egalitarian. And so Acts 29 has always been, uh, uh, historically at least, complementarian. It's convictions about who should be elders in the church, and that would be men biblically, and then who, what the role of men is in the home as well. And so that's those are kind of the distinctives. That's some of how Acts 29 uh, kind of made its mark amongst other church planning networks. Excellent. So you have a personal history with Acts 29. Your church joined this network back in 2011, but lately you've, you've been quite vocal online about your displeasure with this organization. And I want to get to those criticisms soon, but before that, like, could you tell me why you wanted your church to join Acts 29 back in 2011? Yeah, it was mainly relationships. I mean, when I'm thinking back of, to 2011, you know, I was pretty young to plant a church, uh, to be honest, and, and we didn't really know much about, I mean, I'm speaking on this side of things where I kind of mm-hmm. know the different options out there. I just yeah. didn't see, know a lot of the options. I knew of certain figures like Matt Chandler, Mark Driscoll, and they were part of Acts 29. And they seem to be doing good work, uh, gospel revitalization in the case of Chandler with a Baptist church in Texas, and then uh, Driscoll planting a church in Seattle, which is a very secular context. And so 
our, we started building relationships with guys that were already in the network. And so it just seemed like when we were planting, that was pretty much one of the only networks we looked at with any kind of serious intent. Mm-hmm. And so that the appeal to us was really the thinking like a missionary, how to go into a secular context with a missionary mindset, the biblical convictions, uh, particularly around complementarianism and soteriology. And so those kind of three things for us really like were like, hey, these, this seems like a tribe we can belong to. It seems like people who could resource us, people who are experienced and could help us as we plant a church in Boulder, Colorado. Nice. Okay. So now, as I mentioned a second ago, like you're quite critical of Acts 29 now. So what were some of the events that led you to change your mind about this ministry? Yeah. So as the ministry grew, um, you know, the first kind of rift, you could say, the first uh, thread that was pulled was this, the removal of Mark Driscoll and this isn't a podcast about him or his ministry right. or anything like that, but you know it the way it was done and the clear, lack of clarity uh, that I sensed as a pastor on the ground around how that was investigation was conducted, who was involved, for what reasons there was a lot of he said she said there didn't seem to be biblical judicious practices. Mm. That was kind of the first crack in the trust foundation, and with any organization, you know, organizations trade on relationships and trust, and so. That was the first thing. And then after Driscoll left, there was a bigger emphasis. It shifted an emphasis away from kind of like, here's where we stand. Here's what we're about. Kind of very Driscoll leadership, very like kind of dogmatic, right? And it shifted Mm -hmm. almost to the complete opposite to where they, now they were saying, here's what we want to be known for. And was like, if you were to paint a picture of like the opposite of Driscoll, that's that's what they painted a picture of. And so Mm -hmm. it became more softening, uh, more kind of like, hey, how, how do we not? not be known for what we're against, but what we're for, which is good a good idea in practice. Um, mm-hmm. And then over time, you know, there's a bigger emphasis on the global, which I felt called to be an overseas missionaries, uh, missionary when I was uh, younger before I planted a church. And so I, I love reaching the, the global people and people in all nations. Like, that's not something I'm against. But mm-hmm. as the network expanded to have a global reach, they started really emphasizing the global emphasis, the, the the diversity, all that kind of stuff. And so you had certain figures come up in the network that were really pushing a diversity agenda. Uh, whatever your perspective on that was, it just felt very, uh, it felt like somebody hit a wrong key on a keynote where I was like, it, it kind of caught my ear and I was like, why, what is this emphasis about and why are we doing it? And, uh, and so that was happening 2016 and on up to 2020. And that's where a lot of the or trust erosion started to happen. Like one example I can think of was at a uh, at a uh, conference out in Reno, Nevada, where you had a lot of pastors meeting. They were talking about racial quotas and their hiring practices for the network, and I just I, I found that odd, an odd thing for a Christian organization to kind of highlight is like this is how serious we take diversity. We're going to like make sure we hire certain skin colors. And I was like, that seems weird, but I'm still willing to trust, you know, I was still trying to trust older godly men. Um, But that's where a lot of the foundations uh, started to kind of erode trust. And then 2020 hit and really things just blew up uh, in 2020. I mean, for everybody. So I'm not unique in that, but, but, but for my relationship, our church's relationship with Acts 29, that's where like things just really like, really fractured in terms of trust. So I want, I want to follow up on a few different things here. So in, in an article that you wrote um, talking about this, you mentioned this guy named Steve Timmis getting fired for being an abusive leader. 
And and I mean, like obviously, I know you're against abusive leadership. Like no one likes that. Like, like that's just <laughs> that's just awful. Uh, but I, I want to make sure that people don't un- misunderstand like what you're what you're up to here. So just hopefully you can kind of clarify this particular issue for the audience. So is your complaint more about like, like the lack of transparency surrounding someone like Tim is getting fired? So like you feel like maybe Acts Twenty Nine they investigated it, but they're not making public what their investigation is. So you so. So the issue of trust again, you're like, well, hang on, you're not telling me what's going on, so I don't know if I can trust you. Like, is that is that more of the complaint? Yeah, the complaint is that um, first of all, there was there has been no, I didn't know this at the time, but there has been no investigation done. Oh, like, no I, investigation at all. Yeah, there was no investigation. Like, Steve actually had to go hire an, a company that does investigate ministries on his own, on his own dime, to okay. try to clear his name. And he's been an open book with anyone that asked questions as far as uh, what was going on. And then, so yeah, the way it was conducted, the lack of transparency, the lack of an investigation, all those things uh, are, are a complete breach of trust, especially with someone so high up in the organization. I mean, he's the CEO, whatever you think of the title of a CEO of a, of a church network organization, but that's what he was. Mm-hmm. And so he was a you know figurehead, a big deal in the network. And so my concern, if I were to just lay it out, was like, okay, so now... The, the the rumor surrounding Driscoll is that he was an abusive leader. Okay, right. I'll grant I'll grant that argument. Let's grant that argument. Now we've got the president Matt Chandler of Acts twenty nine saying that Timis was an abusive leader. He says this publicly. Uh, Timis has never been confronted on those particular matters from those particular people, other than anonymous complaints in a in a very public uh, publication. And so now we've had two abusive leaders. Mm-hmm. If we're going to grant those arguments. That's not a good look. No. So what are we doing, if anything, to make sure that either we're warning pastors of what is abuse? You know, let's let's look at that. We should be equipping pastors on biblical definitions of what is spiritual abuse. And two, what are we doing to prevent further abuse leaders coming up? Mm-hmm. If we if we grant those presuppositions, and every time I ask those questions, they're like, you just need to trust us. And if you can't trust us, you should just leave. And I'm like, well, that's... That's not a good look either. So mm-hmm. I don't know what's going on, guys, but this is really weird. So that that's kind of my thing with uh, with the whole Timis debacle, you know. And from uh, I know people that have interacted with him, and you know, they didn't necessarily appreciate him as a boss or a pastor or anything like that. And I'm hoping to get him on on my podcast soon to to just talk with him and hear his side of the mm-hmm. story because it, I don't think he's been able to do that. You know, he's been cut. He got cut out of the network. And a lot of these guys, when you're in American celebrity kind of pop evangelical culture if you're a celebrity and you get you get a publication writing against you and then you get fired and removed all of a sudden these relationships that you've uh, had because of your celebrity you're just cut off man you're like out to you're put out to pasture no one talks to you no one reaches out to you no communication uh makes me think of like john wick excommunicado like you're (laughs) you're dead to them and so it, it makes me sad because like he's a man you know and that's not how we should treat humans um, so yeah, that's kind of my perspective on that. Yeah. But so, so two, so two things to follow up on that really quick. So one, you said no investigation was done at all. Correct. Okay. Uh, and then two, could, could you tell people the name of your podcast if they want to follow up later? Yeah, sure. Uh, the podcast is foolproof theology, F U L L proof theology. Nice. Okay. So I, I want to stay with this theme of abusive leadership, uh, for a moment. So, so you mentioned in, um, in in one of your articles that you're writing on this that Acts 29 started pushing people to endorse the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020. 
And and I'm guessing at the time you did not know about the corruption that was going on with the co-founder, Patrice Kalours, because none of us really knew. <laughs> yeah, correct. So for people who don't know, she was taking all the money and buying herself mansions. I, I forget the exact number, but I think it was at least four, something like this. Um, so it's, it's pretty clear she's using Black Lives Matter as, as a grift. And a lot of Black Lives Matter chapters were complaining about this. They're like, hey, where's our money going? Um, but that just wasn't public knowledge back in 2020. So, so before I ask my question, though, I want to I want to make again something else very clear to the the audience. So, obviously, you think racism is a form is a form of sin, and I'm guessing you're more than happy to say, "I'm not a racist. Let's stand against racism." But but being against racism, that's not your problem with BLM. It, it sounds like your problem is the way that Acts 29 was pressuring people to support BLM. So so I want to kind of try to get clarity on this for the audience here. So, so do you feel like Acts 29 was like strong arming or like kind of bullying people to endorse BLM? Was it something like this? Well, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question. And really my, my beef with it was like, you know, I'm at the time it was four years ago almost at this time. So I was like 33. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm hoping these older godly men can help me understand and navigate. The, there's a lot of tumult, you know, there's, there's complaints, there's riots, there's calls for justice, all the stuff. And I'm trying to just think clearly and biblically about what's going on in our culture and our city. And so whether it's racism or whatever these things, I'm like, we should probably be providing really biblical uh, just guidelines and clarity on these matters. But instead, what I got was basically like the whole talking points from the world. Silence is violence. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're not speaking out on it, then that says something about you. Who you voted for in 2016 and 2020 will make you a racist um, mm-hmm. if you voted for that person. So that was a lot of it. And then, you know, for our network president, he gets up in the pulpit. And I think it was still over. Uh, a lot of people were still virtual or any or stuff like that. And so he berates his church and he berates the, the church, as, not just his church, but like the church, uh, kind of big C church. And says, like, if you don't, if you criticize this movement and you can't get behind it, while you, it's all your fault this movement had to come about in the first place, then you're the problem. And I was just like, I saw people in my church sharing that video. And I was like, horrified because of the sloppiness, the intellectual and pastoral sloppiness of kind mm-hmm. of like that call and charge. And it was affecting my church on the ground. So now I've got people in my church calling for us to release a statement on our complicity in systemic racism, all this stuff. And so it wasn't just like my complaints, like seeing them do that. It was affecting me and my ministry. And so that's where a lot of the like the heat came from. And so I don't think it was like strong arming in the sense of like, if you don't agree with us, you are kicked out or you have to put this on your statement to be part of, or your church's website to be part of Acts 29. It was just a culture of kind of like intense passionate like you have to comply you have to speak on these things otherwise you're guilty of racism that's what it Mm -hmm. felt like as a pastor in the network that so because i see i was in europe throughout like all this uh, time period and stepped back in america a few times but as i would see a lot of these these talking points start to hit europe people didn't know what to do with it because they've they've long thought about issues of racism and reconciliation and because you've got all these different countries you're just slammed together you're now a union and you're like okay what does that look like (laughs) and when these things would happen like when you'd have these like these american talking points of well you're racist if you don't agree to the slogan they're just like they look horrified at me uh and like sometimes when i'd be in context they'd hear my accent and they're like wait you're not british you're you're american i was like yeah and they would get really uncomfortable like how how politically correct are you? And I was like, I've not been in America for a while. Because you're right. These slogans, like they just, they hit you and you, 
like you're like you can't answer in a nuanced way. You're not allowed to do that. Yeah. So so you, okay. So you guys are facing that. Okay. So so now so okay. So after COVID and BLM, it, there was another thing you mentioned in one of your articles. You mentioned the tragic death of one of one of the board members as well, and. And so a lot of these things are kind of swirling in your head. And so you're starting to raise questions about the leadership at X-29. Because, you know, you want to be able to see if you can really trust your leaders. And and I think that's really fair because what you had written in an article is you said your church was giving 2% of your annual budget to X-29 uh, to support their, support their mission. And that's, you know, that's a good chunk of money. So it makes sense you'd want to make sure that you can really trust these leadership that you're giving a lot of money to. So how did they respond to you asking, like, some critical questions? Yeah, so a typical response would be kind of twofold. One, it was never answered in email, and that's that was I, from what I understand that was intentional because that way nothing could be held against them. They always wanted to get on the phone. Mm-hmm. But the second thing with the financial stuff, to give them the benefit of the doubt, to give any organization mm-hmm. the benefit of the doubt in 2020, it was a crazy time. So like oh, yeah. trying to get a budget together, trying to get meetings together, that can be difficult. But when an organization's handling millions and millions of dollars, and uh, and most of it, I think sixty percent of it goes to funding staff. Not not like you would you would think if you're a church planting network, a majority of those donations would go to church planting. But when you start seeing them, you know they have sixty to eighty staff to support. Uh, you know, five hundred churches in the U.S. and around two hundred globally. You're kind of going like, okay, what is our support going to? And if mm-hmm. if this is if I'm seeing churches planted that seem to be really out of step culturally with where where I'm seeing the Bible, uh, I think the Bible should lead us to be culturally, mm-hmm. then, and if my money's going to support them, I'd like to know how that funding works, and can I choose who to support, that kind of thing. And it was always just like, we're working on the budget, we're working on the budget. And it wasn't until, I think, this past year that they finally released a budget. So they had been pretty good about annual reporting and sharing the finances with us and where that money goes. But even the you know, it, it's weird in ministry because categories in a budget, um, they can be kind of dumping grounds for various activities. Sure. And, uh, yeah. and, and I get that. Like there's, it's just, it can be complicated to manage that much money. But before 2020, I think I kind of looked at those categories and been like, sure, like I trust you guys. Like it seems to all be good. But after 2020 with, with some creeping distrust, I became more like, yeah, but what is that? What does that category mean? When you say global, like, that's a pretty pretty broad t- category when you say staff or when you say all this stuff conferences like who's getting paid what I don't need to know the like how much the CEO is making I, you know that's sure. that's fine but but yeah it was it was regularly rebutted with either what's your problem that kind of attitude like why do you need to ask these questions or two we're working on it just trust us and I was like uh, that's not helping me right now you know right so, so I'm just trying to get in your in your head a little bit here. So, like, because you're you're 30, what now? I'm 36 now. 36 now. So, like, okay, so you're a young guy getting into your own ministry, really trying to figure out like just how ministry works as a whole, and then you're starting to figure a few things out of like, I'm a leader. This is what a leader, I guess, is supposed to look like. Let me ask these people I trust, and you're getting nothing. Correct. Okay, that's okay. I can see why that would be upsetting yeah that, yeah that makes sense yeah well and and another pastor in uh san jose california justin buzzard he left so there were two churches that left and published letters about why they left his mm-hmm. letter was very conciliatory but also very clear and i i resonated with a lot of what he said because in the letter he said basically the moves he saw acts 29 making post 2020 in terms of how they communicated and how they led mm-hmm. his heart was like i need to do the opposite of that 
Like in a time where trust is low and people can't trust, I want to get more transparent. I want more church involvement. I want to be with my people more. Mm -hmm. And what we sensed is a withdrawal and a defensive posture from network leadership. So I just wanted to highlight that letter because it was very conciliatory and he did highlight some things that I, I deeply resonated with as, as well. Yes. So, so you mentioned this guy who, who's like, we're pulling out. So that's like another thing I, I noticed when I was looking into this was we're witnessing a, a significant number of churches leaving Acts 29. And one of the numbers I saw was that they apparently are facing a 20% shortfall in their budget, which is, that's, that's a lot. So, I, you know, it just makes me think what's going on here, which is why I wanted to get you on the show. And uh, so do you feel like Acts 29 has been like somewhat legalistic about like the current American version of social justice. And do you feel like they're prioritizing American wokeness over the gospel? I mean, from my vantage point, I would say absolutely. And I think it stems from a kind of posture of being a missionary and being missional. I think they, to, to once again, kind of uh, give them benefit of the doubt. It, it stems mm-hmm. from a heart that wants to be a missionary in a context and try to reach people in a, that are secular and I get that. Being a boulder, there's lots of people on reach here, and they've got, you know, kind of the creedal yard signs. They've got all the right flags, you know, everything everywhere. And so it can be hard to try to understand how to reach those people. Um, but absolutely, that's been prioritized throughout the network. If you go back there, it's behind a paywall, but Eric Mason in an article kind of admitted in uh, 2020, because he left the network in 2020. That was another thing, mm-hmm. is that you would have these big names in the network that would just leave, and then we'd never talk about it. Like, oh. why did he leave? You know, like what happened? But he wrote in an article that he felt it was his responsibility to bring wokeness into Acts 29. And he wrote that book, Woke Church. And that was kind of before woke became this word that was very associated with Black Lives Matter, critical theories, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it became apparent that that's been his, that was his agenda going back 2015, 2016. And so absolutely, I think it's, it's very much captured by kind of this uh, woke ideology. That's not every church. Um, every Acts 29 church is unique. There's lots of good brothers in the network who are just trying to do the best job they can because church planning is hard. And you, yeah, you, yeah. You, don't, you don't have time to keep up on all the latest literature or drama in the world. You're just trying to pastor people, help people keep their marriages together, help people love Jesus more. So there's a lot of good people in the network. But yeah, there, there's been a, a complete institutional takeover in their policies and practices, in my estimation, on how they engage culture. Um, and they're doing it in one direction only. Mm, okay. Now, another complaint you've been vocal about is how the leadership is set up and, and how people become board members. So tell me a little bit about this complaint. Yeah. So what became clear over the last few years before uh, our removal was that the board is appointed by itself. So it's a self-perpetuating board. So in order to get on the board, first of all, the organization is structured as a board uh, governed structure. There are no members other than that churches are members of the network, but they have no voting rights. Hmm. So you join a network like Ash 29, it's not a denomination. There is no kind of like practice of, of justice in the system itself. So if, if somebody has a problem with somebody else, there's no like arbitration or anything like that, that people can resolve differences. It's literally just board unilateral decision making. Now that board will employ um, the CEO or the, the chief executive of that board will is typically on the board, but he's also an employee of the organization, and he's uh, bequeathed the entire budget to make staffing decisions, initiative decisions, all this kind of stuff. And so he'll have his whole staff that he's hand-selected, naturally, as an executive would, and so those staff report directly to him. He'll create layers within that staff, 
and those people will report to different people. But what we saw a lot of times is a lot of turnover, um, hmm. which isn't surprising in the last few years, but it, it's been a pattern that we've seen often in Acts 29, kind of like people disappearing, people coming back, mainly disappearing um, and leaving, and there's not a lot of clarity. So you've got this kind of whole other, it feels like, a, I'm going to, it's not to be conspiratorial, but it feels like a shadow organization behind kind of the front-facing Acts 29 church planning. It feels like this whole apparatus behind it, which is, there is a, in any organization, there's a necessary kind of back-end admin aspect to it. Yeah. Um, but it feels like there's a whole different organization that's operating and has their own agenda and own initiatives that nobody knows about. And so they're always having meetings uh, behind closed doors that nobody really knows about. And so that board is is self-appointed, meaning that the only people that can get on the board are people who have, uh, you know, I really don't know what the qualifications are other than like relationships, you know, with who have good friendships with the people already on the board, because it's not meritocratic. It's not like if you do this um, or if you have a church of 2000, you know, then you have you're eligible to get on the board. It's literally just on like who, you know, and if Mm -hmm. you can build a relationship. And that's something we saw back, gosh, back in 2013, that the, the way they assess church planners is very much based on vibes. Um, Mm -hmm. They'll ask some good questions in that assessment process, but oftentimes what we kept complaining is like, we're in Colorado, and if you're going to plant in a rural context, that guy's going to come in and he's going to look very different than an urban church planter. You know, he's not going to be into craft coffee and wearing skinny jeans. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But if he comes into that assessment wearing camo and talking with an accent, they're going to view that and kind of stick up their nose a little bit and go like, well, we don't think you're Acts 29 material. It's just very subjective. And so that's just that's all throughout the system is the subjective kind of populist nature of the network. So yeah, the board is governed in that way, self-appointed, and then how people are removed from the board or appointed. There's no clarity. Uh, no one has a say. It's very it's very uh, you know to use a good American term, it's tyrannical. You know, it's very much like these people are ruling over a budget and over churches and kind of giving talking points to churches, and we don't know why or how that works. The, the vibe thing really killed me because I, I remember in uh, this would have been 2014 and 2015, one of my relatives uh, was was doing church planning, and we we're having a lot of conversations about it and everything. And he was looking at X29, and that was the exact thing he said was he's like they're trying to figure out if I'm X29 material. And I don't know if I want to be X twenty nine material. Like, <laughs> right. He's like, I'm not skinny enough. I can't wear these jeans anymore. And like we were like, you know, we're joking around about this kind of thing. But, yeah. But that was that was a real issue that I remember him mentioning. So it's yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I've got I've got one final question for you today because you're, you're you're really interested in like uh, reform theology and uh, uh, and and I've got a lot of interest in this. I'm no longer a Calvinist, but I I've still like I publish on these things. I I just actually published a paper recently defending a, a version of French Calvinism, but. So, so what do you think the future of Reformed theology and like Reformed evangelicalism, what's that going to look like in America? Yeah, it's a great question because a lot of ministries from the Re- Young Restless Reformed kind of popped up, and you've got Gospel Coalition, T4G, Nine Marks, uh, you've got all these organizations. And so I think from my vantage point, like with the way I talk with my elders in my church about it, is like, yes, I am Calvinistic in my soteriology, that is not going to prevent me from working with an Arminian, whereas back right. 10, 12 years ago, it would have been more of a dividing line. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're seeing is in any Reformation work, which a lot of the work being done in the church today, particularly in America, I view as reformational, there's going to be need to be uh, more 
kind of not fringe as in bad, but more exploration on the fringes of theology to push that theology out, and it's got to be more historically informed. And so, what I was hungry for, and I think a lot of people are hungry for, was a more historically informed perspective on current world events. And so, like in, when the when the pandemic hit, I was like, well, surely. We're not the first church, we're not the first time in the God's history of redemption that the church has ever faced these kinds of things. I mean, yeah, it's unique. Right. In our technocratic age, with pharmaceuticals, all this kind of stuff, it's, it, that's unique. But we can look to church history, we can go back to, you know, the Black Death or Calvin's Geneva. We can look at how pastors operated, mm-hmm. and maybe there's something we could learn and be wise, rather than kind of being just you know, cultural captives to the narrative of the day and trying to hold to like a reformed light uh, engagement with culture. What would it look like to go back and look at like one of the great examples is uh, Kuiper in the Netherlands, you know, uh, Kuiperianism, Neo-Kuiperianism is a big deal. Neo-Calvinism is a big deal in the Young Restless Reformed. But even in Kuiper, we tend to look back to history and we go, well, this guy's the best. I'm going to be like him. And then when you look at like the the context and you look at who he was interacting with and the critiques and you look at the how that turned out for him, you, you can have a better informed picture of his own context. And that should give you a better informed uh, idea of how you might engage your context today. But instead, a lot of the times what we've been fed, especially as a young man, kind of coming out of the young restless reformed is kind of like this figure's the best. Do what he did, you know, and mm-hmm. say his slogans, yeah. uh, all of or, uh there's not one square inch of, of of the universe over which Christ does not claim mine, you know? And you can yeah. put that in your sermon, and man, that, that preaches. Um, yeah. And that's fine. You know, people do that. I don't... I still do that, uh, and many times, unbeknownst to me, you'll you'll just kind of pick up things from different preachers. But I think yeah. it, the future of Reformed, the Reform movement, particularly in America, is going to have to be more historically informed, and that's why I'm doing my PhD in church history. I'm trying to provide an offering there from New England, and it's got to be exploring more of the fringes. So that's why you're going to see more discussions that you wouldn't have seen 10 years ago, whether it's around health and fitness or political engagement, systems of governance. Um, even today in the American context, a big part of the discourse is like aliens and UFOs and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, 10 years ago, I would have kind of t- rolled my eyes at that. And now I'm more interested in that because not just because people are hungry for it, but I think people are hungry for it because they're interested in understanding the world more comprehensively than simply a Calvinistic soteriology has typically been offered to them as a solution, kind of a a cure-all for everything, every ill in their life. Yeah, that that makes sense. So, Chase, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. responds. Well, not actually. As I often do on this show, I try to get a variety of voices and opinions on different topics so that you, my dear listener, can make up your own mind. 
I reached out to Acts 29 for a comment or a brief interview about these recent allegations from Chase and others who have left the organization. The Acts 29 press office informed me that they would not be interested in doing an interview, which is, you know, that's fair enough. They probably don't listen to my show, so they probably think I'm some fundamentalist wanting to shut them down. I don't know. I have no idea. Maybe they think I'm some like liberal who believes that Acts 29 has, has not done enough to promote social justice. They don't know where I stand on these issues, and neither do you, my dear listener. I've not revealed any of that because I don't trust Americans to have nuance behind their Twitter talking points. Acts 29 did offer to consider responding to some written questions. I originally asked them about an article that Chase Davis wrote in May 2023 for the American Reformer. Chase has a well-written article in this magazine where he lays out his criticisms of Acts 29. Now, the press office for Acts 29 said that they have no comment on the article, but they offered to respond to some other written questions that he might have. So I sent them four written questions asking about the various accusations that Chase and others have made. That was several weeks ago. They've not responded, and I think it's very clear they have no interest in responding. What does that say about Acts 29? I don't know. I'm not certain. I mean, maybe this refusal to respond to criticism, maybe that fits with the pattern of behavior that Chase and others have complained about. I don't know. Or maybe this refusal to respond, maybe that reflects their lack of interest in my show. You know, because not everybody likes my show. Not everyone knows about my show. Some people just don't care. I really have no idea. I, I'm trying to be objective here, but I am slightly annoyed that a press office is uninterested in speaking with the public. I mean, their job is to release official statements to the public. But to be fair to them, they are not obligated to speak with me. No one owes me an interview. And in fact, you know, I do the same thing. I get asked to do a debate or a dialogue with various people, and I turn them down sometimes because either I don't have time or I'm not interested or I think that you know, the person that they want me to debate is not really worth my time. There's a lot of different possible explanations here, and I just don't know. Now, you're probably wanting to know where I land on all of these issues that we've been talking about. I mean, as some of you know, I'm no longer part of the young, restless, and reform crowd. I'm definitely not a complementarian. My views on what the Americans are calling social justice, I mean, they're all over the place. But so what? I mean, I can't think of a single guest that I've had on my show that I do not disagree with. I think all of my guests are wrong about most things. Especially Stephen Nemesh. Stephen, if you're listening, you're wrong about everything. Even when Stephen agrees with me, he somehow manages to get absolutely everything wrong. Because not everyone can achieve epistemic perfection like I have. Not everyone gets the privilege of being right all the time like I do. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Jokes aside, I can reveal a little bit about what I think about these stories surrounding Acts 29. I've looked a bit into the story about Steve Timmis, who resigned from Acts 29. Christianity Today did an expose on this a couple years ago. The article, it's, it's pretty damning about Timmis' behavior. The Christianity Today article contains the names and stories of people who used to attend Timmis' church in the UK. These were not anonymous accusations against Timmis. These were people who put their names in the article in order to go on record about his alleged bullying and alleged misuse of power. There were quite a few stories and names in this article. I mean, quite a few. The way that Christianity Today article lays all of this out there seems to be a pervasive pattern from Timis. If anything remotely like those allegations is true, then I think there are clear grounds for removing Timis from his position. 
But I want you to remember something that Chase brought up in my interview with him. It's something that really bothers me. There was no investigation from Acts 29. According to Chase, Timmis had to hire a firm himself to do the investigation. That, I find that worrying. However, it would be irresponsible of me to say much more on this Timmis case because I don't have the details and, well, they didn't have an investigation. I can't say this much. In general, just in general terms, a lack of investigation and a lack of transparency worries me. And when there's no transparency about how an investigation is conducted, that also worries me. I have seen far too many organizations claim to have investigated a bullying or harassment case, but the investigation was really just a cover-up. Some of you may remember the Ravi Zacharias case. Zacharias hired a firm that was run by this woman who was a real piece of work. Her name is Judy Dabbler. She ran two organizations. The first is called Live at Peace Ministries, and the second is called Creative Conciliation. Judy Dabbler had sexually abused two of her own employees. Her investigation tactics, they are not investigative. Her tactics were cover-up, manipulation, and blackmail. Dabbler was not a mediator like she claimed to be. She was a fixer. If you had a problem that needed to go away, you hired Judy Dabbler. That is exactly what Ravi Zacharias did. According to Christianity Today, people at Ravi Zacharias Ministries called Dabbler the Enforcer. That's not exactly the nickname of someone who's given the task of reconciliation. Dabbler was able to successfully cover up Zacharias' sexual misconduct for a time. Yet many people at the Zacharias organization themselves were horrified, and they demanded a real investigation to be conducted. And that eventually happened, and the truth came out. Anyway, let me come back to Chase in Acts 29. Here's what struck me as I was interviewing Chase. It is the issue of trust in your elders and leaders. He's a young man. He's trying to figure out how to be a good minister to his church. I've had a lot of friends and relatives in the ministry, and I've been in the ministry myself. I know what it's like when you're trying to figure things out. For me, when I was a youth minister first starting out, I placed a lot of trust in my elders. As I was finishing my undergraduate degree, I worked at a church in Georgia that my Uncle Tim was the lead pastor for. I placed a great deal of trust in my Uncle Tim and my Aunt Janetta. They taught me I mean, just so many important things about church ministry. There's, I mean, there's no way I could have figured this stuff out on my own. I am deeply grateful for everything they taught me. I mean, young ministers, they need to place their trust in their elders. And, and because of that, those senior leaders, they need to be trustworthy people. One of the things that I greatly admired about Tim and Janetta was their transparency. They really helped me understand how things worked and how to communicate important information to the congregation. Their leadership was exemplary, and I pray that more Christian leaders can be like them. When I look back at the churches and organizations that I've worked for, you know, the schools that I've taught at, one of the things that made for a good working environment was a sense of transparency. When I think about some of the awful places that I've worked for, one common factor was a complete lack of transparency. It was the common demand that I trust and obey combined with a refusal to give any details about anything. When a bullying case would come up, the investigation would be conducted with zero transparency and a very serious refusal to go near the difficult questions. I mean, it just gets worse from there, which completely broke my trust. So in general, again, just speaking in general terms, when an organization refuses to have any transparency, that is worrying. Now, another thing that struck me about my interview with Chase is the way that he kept asking for guidance, 
but did not receive any. When you are a young minister, you really need some clear biblical guidelines. I mean, you want to become a good leader. You really do. You're trying to be the best leader you can for your congregation. And when the stuff about Mark Driscoll started to come out, a lot of people wanted to figure out what not to do. Like Chase said in the interview, he wanted to know what abusive leadership looks like so that he can identify it, avoid it, and call it out if necessary. So the refusal of Acts 29 to define terms on an important issue like this, that, that's a big red flag for me. In the United Kingdom, there's a document that was created by the government and the Citizens Advice that clearly defines things like bullying, sexual harassment, sexual assault, and so on. There was a lot of pressure on universities in the UK to adopt these definitions and guidelines. I worked at a university that did not adopt those definitions and guidelines, so when cases came up that the university, well, they could just easily say, well, nothing bad's happened here. A refusal to define terms and guidelines around such things, it gives power to the wicked. So I understand Chase's concern to request clear guidelines from the leadership at Acts 29. But I cannot really give a full judgment on the Acts 29 situation, since Acts 29 is not interested in telling me their side of the story. I want to hear their side of the story so that I can make up my mind, but the press office, they're not interested. Now, what about the accusation that Acts 29 has gone woke and is aggressively promoting a false gospel? I, I don't really know. I'm not involved with Acts 29. I no longer know anyone who works there. All my former classmates who work there, they, they, they don't work there anymore. My guess is, I don't know, you know what? I'm tired and I'm, I'm going to bed. Thank, thank you, everybody. This ends the press conference. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes on philosophical theology.